Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. Nationhood is not parenthood and the state simply cannot be raising our children. The state cannot be going in there and saying, I am willing to parent this child because for that child, that likely ends up in out-of-home care. And we know this with the data and we know this with all the information that's out there already is our children are going from out-of-home care to the criminal justice system and there is a recidivism rate of re-incarceration that's just constantly happening over and over again. Making child protection more accountable. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The Family Matters campaign recently released its annual report, again highlighting the disproportionate number of First Nations families impacted by the child protection system. The latest figures reveal that in the last year alone, more than 20,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were in out-of-home care. The data shows that represents a record rate of 13 in every 1,000 children caught up in the system. And if the trend continues, those numbers will more than double within the next decade. Activist and writer Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts was a keynote speaker during the launch of the report last month. Vanessa herself was forcibly removed from her family at the age of just 10 and a half. And as you're about to hear, her experiences within the out-of-home care system prompted her to dedicate her career to changing the child protection system. You know, the right now is probably one of the most critical periods because we're constantly in this this dialogue of, well, what can we do in the next 10 years? What can we do in the next five years? What's the next strategy plan? How can we achieve close the gap? How can we actually start meeting these outcomes? And I think the more we're focused on the future, we're actually moving away from the present. And and there is a significant issue right now that's going on, which is our children are being removed at a disproportionate rate and it needs to be addressed. And these issues are stemming very much from colonisation and the intergenerational effects of trauma, but it's also stemming from legislation and it's also stemming from cultural incompetence from people in the positions going out there and making these decisions from um, risk of significant harm reports going out there and removing our children. And It's very much a narrative where I just need to emphasise, you know, nationhood is not parenthood and the state simply cannot be raising our children. The state cannot be going in there and saying, I am willing to parent this child because for that child that likely ends up in out-of-home care, and we know this with the data and we know this with all the information that's out there already, is our children are going from out-of-home care to the criminal justice system and there is a recidivism rate of re-incarceration that's just constantly happening over and over again. And, you know, there's a high rate of our, of our young children that have been out of home care that are placed on remand. And the reason they're placed on remand is when they do get to court or if something's happened or they're known as a runaway child or the too hard basket for the people caring for this child, they do make contact with the criminal justice system. They find themselves in front of a court place. But who don't they find there? They don't find the Department of Communities and Justice standing with them. And that's a common narrative that happens too often. It's happened to me. And it's very much happening to our children today where our children are going to these courtrooms, there's no representation and the easiest way for putting a a young person or a child at risk is we put them into the criminal justice system, put them in juvie until there is a conviction laid or a not guilty found because there's simply not enough homes and there's not enough support um, being provided to that young person. For me, that's very close to home and it's very close to home because it's a space that I could have ended up in myself. I was forcibly removed at the age of 10 and a half 
and it was the same year that Kevin Rudd did announce his national apology. I think it's a disgrace that the same year that our then Prime Minister announced the national apology, which very much got international recognition but also domestic recognition, but actually is still out there seeing young black kids like myself be removed. I think that's a national shame on on Australia's agenda. And it's something where, you know, I, when I deeply reflect on my experiences growing up, what was absent in that was the approach in the way the system actually came to support our family. It was very much seen in a deficit and it was very much racially charged. And it was very much one that saw if you had a mental health issue, you were discriminated against and placed in the too hard basket. And if you're black in this country, there's no way you can raise a child. And, you know, for me being removed from my family and my community, I've actually been removed quite late. And my experience of being in out-of-home care meant, you know, during the first couple of years, it's a, it's a short-term space and it's very much you're going from home to home to home. And then after those first couple of years, um, there's an attempt to find this idea of permanency or, I guess, restoration back to your family. I'll stand here as, as an advocate for our children. I'll stand here as an advocate for myself. But more importantly, I'll stand here as someone for my parents who, because of that system, they actually have both passed away. They never had their voices represented in any of this space. Their voices were never heard. Their strengths were never acknowledged. And so when I reflect on the Family Matters report and I reflect on what it's sharing, it's something that actually comes in from a narrative that says, well, where's the financial support for these Aboriginal organisations out there? Where's the support for these voices that are actually achieving the outcomes? But there's always that line at the end that says, we'll help you to this point. We'll give you this amount of funding for this time frame. But after here, we can't do that anymore. And I think it's a, it's a serious concern when, when children become one of the biggest parts of uh, the political discussion because for children, it shouldn't be political. When it comes to our babies, when it comes to child removal, when it comes to best in custody and when it comes to recognising the harm of this country and what it's done and perpetrated against First Nations people, it definitely should not be political because our children are then entering a cycle of further trauma and then entering a cycle of further intersectionality of poverty. And it's something that we as, as a nation, as politicians, as ministers, as activists on the ground, it really needs to start deeply reflecting on. I wrote a few points here that I really wanted to target and, and talk about. And one was this idea. So I looked at the Family Matters report and in New South Wales, so where, where I'm living, um, there's 7,126 children, Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. Now, for that number, that's quite small. That's actually 7,126 children and we could not have gone in and supported these families. We could not have provided strength for these families. We could not have come in from a sense of understanding that said, okay, well, what issues do you have here? Are you subjected to poverty? Are you subjected to discrimination? Are you escaping a family violent partnership and you need support? Instead, the eyes of the system comes in, again, the state thinking it's going to be a better parent, comes into these communities and homes and removes the child thinking that is the best interest of the child. Well, the best interest of the child and this argument that holds so much weight when it goes to court is something that's false because the best interest of the child is centralised through a lens of whiteness. Where I'm from, the best interest of the child is definitely growing up with kinship, community and culture. And that's not rocket science to learn these days. And in this conversation, I'm seeing, you know, a lot of great people from, you know, who are professors, who are ministers, who are, you know, writing the publication on what it's like for children out of home care. 
But what it's missing is, well, where are we driving that actual change? What are we doing right now to hold the state accountable? What are we doing right now when we don't hear about those children that are dying out of home care? What are we doing when that child is being placed to a minimum of 12 different foster homes? How are we responding to Royal Commissions, for example, like um, the Dondale and Northern Territory Royal Commission? How are we responding to the 7,126 children, which is not actually a high number, which tells me as a government, why aren't we providing more holistic support to these families that maybe it's not necessarily a priority? And I think with this narrative of close the gap, if we're really serious about closing the gap, we need to move away from it being a theory and more push towards it being an action. And that action is amplified in the voices of incredible organisations out there doing the groundwork. And if you take a moment with these communities and you take a moment to listen to these voices, you will see that these children want to be with mob, they want to be with those familiar aunties, those uncles, or someone who has a connection to their line versus going to these different homes, going to these white homes, being raised with these white policies and white spaces, which is very harmful to me and to other First Nations sisters and brothers. The next thing that I wanted to have a quick yarn about was in 2018, the amendments to the adoption laws, which pretty much removed parental consent in that process. Now, one thing I noticed in the Family Matters report when I was reading through the key findings was there are 19 Aboriginal children that have already been placed into adoption. Now, those children are now, who knows, these children are in adopted homes and we won't probably hear from them until 20 or 30 years down the track when there's another discussion about, oh, crap, what are we doing about the implications of adoption on First Nations children? oh, crap, what are we doing about the implications of Indigenous children now who are being adopted? I'm sorry, but as, as someone who studied social work and about to complete my law degree, the history of social work is actually one of shame. And it's one of shame because social work has played a role in those removals and particularly pushing children through adoption. And what's happening right now with these adoption laws and those 19 children that have been removed is that we're not going to know where they are. So my first call out is, looking at these amendments to the adoption laws, what that means for First Nations people, how that disproportionately impacts us by being that 7,126 in the space and where that means our children are going to end up. I had a friend of mine who literally just had a baby a month or so ago now. Before she even had the baby, this is a black mother, before she even had the baby, about to go into labour, she had the department present at the hospital. Now, this narrative isn't new because it's the same thing that they did to my mother. As soon as I was born, a caseworker was present at my hospital whilst my dad was standing there. There was profiling of my father, there was profiling of my mother, and just like one month ago, there was profiling of this black mother who had just given birth to a beautiful, beautiful bub. And my concern is with these adoption laws and these children that are being born, in the eyes of the system, in the eyes of a system that doesn't necessarily understand what it's like for First Nations children going to these spaces, is that those babies are actually going to be pushed under those adoption laws and they probably won't even know who their cultural identity is, their kinship is, or where they belong. So for me, when I read the Family Matters report, I want to feel hope. I want to be optimistic for the future. But I find that really difficult when we're in a time right now where there are children that need to be supported holistically. And I'm talking holistically with trauma-informed care, families being supported with strength-based approach coming in, state-of-the-art, housing accommodation. If there's a concern don't foster the child, actually look at fostering a family. And and I say that meaning different things, but if you support that family and you support that unit as a whole and you start addressing those, in, those issues of intergenerational trauma, which has been passed down, that's when we'll start seeing serious change. And, and I, I'm a really strong advocate for that. And I'm a really strong advocate for our children that need to be, need to be heard because enough is enough. You know, I have a dear friend of mine and I, I think he's actually in this chat right now watching or listening and um, he said to me that there's a time in, in life when you're, when you're going through something and, and there's a system that's just been hurting a group of people constantly. 
And then there's a time where it can hurt so many people and so many children, but then there's children that that intergenerational resilience comes up and that fight comes back. I feel very much blessed to to be able to, to not have suicided, but there's a duty and there's a duty to make sure whilst I'm free that other children are free as well. You've been listening to activist and writer Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. She was speaking at the launch of the annual Family Matters report, highlighting the disproportionate number of First Nations children in out-of-home care. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app? And that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. Tonight, we're bringing you a focus on the child protection system centred on the findings of the latest Family Matters report. Critically, the paper identified the need for a National Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People to oversee the coordination of services and change within the child protection system. Similar roles are already in place in the states of South Australia, Victoria and Queensland. Victoria was the first to introduce the role in 2013, which is currently held by Justin Muhammad. In 2018, South Australia followed suit and the position is currently held by April Laurie, a lifelong advocate for Aboriginal children and families. And in Queensland, Natalie Lewis was appointed to the newly established role earlier this year. Following the launch of the Family Matters report in November, the campaign hosted an online panel discussion with the commissioners. Let's listen in now as they reflect on their roles in their respective states. And we begin with the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People in Victoria, Justin Muhammad. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to briefly explain the roles because there's so much attached to them. But in Victoria, this particular role, the first Commissioner, Andrew Jackamos, the inaugural Commissioner, was appointed in 2013. And so that was, you know, well and truly established around 2012 that he came into 2013. There was a bit of a trailblazing sort of role. There wasn't other commissioners of that sort around in other states and territories to the extent that um, when he came in. So Victoria in some ways I think showed that there needs to be a dedicated person focusing just on Aboriginal children and young people in a broader context of children and young people. So the commission in um, Victoria, we a little bit different to other states. We have oversight over both youth justice, child protection, education and health to a lesser degree, but still oversight on both of those key areas of youth justice and child protection, which are probably the two biggest areas where our children are involved within government systems. In those spaces, we have, um, as I said, let's say oversight. We have a number of different functions that we have powers to do, which we call powers, but we can do individual inquiries of individual children, which we believe the system or the services that are there aren't giving the best interest of the child at heart and their care and protection is at jeopardy. So individually do inquiries, which then get tabled to ministerial level or straight to government. The other area of inquiries which we tend to kind of work on a lot more of is systemic inquiries about how how the system is working and what changes there may be. And that may be a statewide or that may be of a particular area or region. So it can be many and varied. The beauty about well, our powers that we do have when we complete these inquiries, they get tabled directly in Parliament and um, something which from an advocacy point where most of my life is spent, it's quite refreshing to know that what you write and what you're finding in your recommendations can be tabled directly to Parliament and they have to 
be tabled. So it's not hoping that government will listen to you, they will have to receive them at least and then work from there. The other parts, which is the other part of our work that we do, and it's like, like most areas and most commissions, but in the Commission of Victoria, the networking and partnership with the service providers, the community control organisations, which are really taking leaps and bounds of um, moving into this responsibility of caring and protecting our children in ways way more than ever before. And the um, other community organisations which are out there and departments through ministers, DEPSECs and secretaries. And on top of all that, and as in my role, with all the government types of meetings you can go to, um, we also interact with the community themselves face-to-face and that could be with individual carers, um, grandparents, it could be with groups, it could be with a whole region, with youth groups or individual young people and that moves through a number of different mechanisms which gives us the information and the findings that we can advocate effectively on behalf of children and young people. So that's um, probably in a nutshell what we do in saying that our relationships is probably the key thing with this because we know that we've got to make sure that we're all working towards the same goal. And in our role as a monitoring these and being an oversight body is to ensuring that whatever's going on outside of it, that children and young people and Aboriginal children and young people in my role have the highest status and is, is the core function of the role that I have is representing them first and foremost, then everything else then flows um, and, and falls in behind that. Yeah, thank you, Justin. I know there's so much you do there that trying to fit it in a short amount of time, but thank you. Natalie. Yep, sure. The QFCC is a statutory body established in 2014 and um, as a result of the carbon reforms in Queensland, uh, the Queensland Child Protection Commission of Inquiry. So obviously there's intricacies in, in the legislation, but the roles of commissioners in, in Queensland are legislated roles. It is also a legal requirement that one of those roles be um, held by an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person. There is functions you, uh, basically um, oversighting of the child protection system. So advocating, you know, promoting the safety and well-being um, of all children in Queensland. We have, you know, a role in performing systemic oversight. So there's a bit of a distinction in terms of some of the scope of our role as opposed to what Justin's just described in that we don't receive complaints or initiate inquiry in relation to individual children. So we've recently just gone through a, you know, strategic plan refresh, you know, um, and as an agency are very, very clear that our core functions are awareness advocacy and accountability. And um, I think we're well positioned to do that. We also have an opportunity, you know, sort of coming up soon, I'm hoping, um, in that our legislation is due to be reviewed. So we can actually look at what are the existing limitations within the legislation and look to strengthen those so that we can absolutely be the premier advocacy and oversight agency in this state um, as as it pertains to children's rights. So we obviously provide advice. Um, We make submissions about um, national and and state policy and legislative reform. But I guess the most important thing that we do is that we listen to young people. And a commission that doesn't do that is not an authentic commission. And um, and I think that for us, first and foremost, we need to honour the voices of children um, and we need to make sure that the agenda that we are pursuing is absolutely um, embedded in, in the pursuit of their rights and their best interests. So, yeah, that's our role. Thanks. Thanks, Natalie. Done well explaining a short amount of time for being there. It's in short amount of time. So thank you. <laughs> April. 
Thank you. So I think we know that I started in the role in October 2018. That's when I was formally appointed under the Constitution Act of South Australia, but I didn't start until December 2018. The origins of my role stem from, you know, I have to give credit to my Aboriginal community here. It's, you know, the lobbying over the many years in response to the history of Aboriginal child removals and was considered later in the 2003 um, Leighton Review, which was a state plan to protect and advance the interests of children. And the role later gained momentum as a result of the South Australian Child Protection Systems Royal Commission. And in its final report, the commission recommended that amongst oversight bodies, an independent children's commissioner be established in SA. Now, this role was established in 2017, not my role, the other commissioner role, under the Children and Young People's Advocacy and Oversight Bodies Act. Unfortunately, in that act, the children's commissioner role did not include scope for the appointment of a, of a specific commissioner for Aboriginal children and young people. But the Commission did propose that the Children's Commissioner undertake consultation with Aboriginal children and young people. However, the role was not intended to have a primary focus on Aboriginal issues. And that caused disappointment across the Aboriginal community of SA. He'd been advocating for many years about, you know, a lead Aboriginal advocate role for our children and young people. It was through a combination of advocacy for Aboriginal people and government's willingness through an election promise that the role was created. And my appointment, I guess, to the role, if, you know, reflected a bipartisan commitment to positive change for Aboriginal children and young people. My description of current functions is set out in my instrument appointment. However, in a general sense, I see my role as created to promote the rights, safety, development and well-being of Aboriginal children and young people in SA at a systemic level. And that includes interrogating and addressing systemic issues impacting the safety and well-being of Aboriginal children and young people across health, education, child protection and justice and promoting the voice of Aboriginal children and young people with regard to their wellbeing and that is also in line with their families and their community. And although I'm currently located administratively in the office of the Commissioner for Children and Young People, my role and functions are quite independent of the Commissioner for Children and Young People and so our approaches are different. I'm independent from government and I'm required to provide an annual report to the South Australian Minister for Education in relation to my activities in the preceding financial year. I relish my independence. In many ways, I see myself as a challenger and interrogator who provides an important external voice to hold government to account with respect to the, you know, obligations to Aboriginal children and young people and their families, you know, I've got a number of requirements under my role um, and I've got, you know, two staff to help me discharge my role. And I guess what's really important is that as much as we've got a priority to hear directly from Aboriginal children and young people, I'm required to also provide written and oral submissions into inquiries, legislative reforms and departmental proposals advocate for systemic change in multiple forums at agency, state and national level, campaigning for the development of key initiatives, you know, that embed the voices of our children and their families in decisions about their safety and wellbeing. And it's really important that the engagement happens and continues through the agency of of our Aboriginal children and young people. Great. Thanks, April. But I'm going to ask you the next question straight away. You're in line. Yep. 
It's a two-part question. So what are the most crucial challenges in the child protection and out-of-home care system that need to be addressed for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families? And the second part to that question is how would you improve the child protection and out-of-home care system? Or is it a case of complete overhaul? And if so, what would it look like? Well, well, yes, I know. And I guess this applies to all of us. And, And I'm concerned about government child protection agencies failing to adhere to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle. I think, you know, that's the overwhelming message about the challenges. From what I have observed here in SA, whether it be the Child Protection Agency or the early intervention agencies that have been charged with those responsibilities, we've got a number of resources out there across government and, you know, being filtered through to our Aboriginal community controlled structures. We've got restructuring happening. You know, government is developing special policies for Aboriginal children and their families. However, it's missing the mark as there is failure to incorporate the key principle of partnership with our Aboriginal families in those decision-making forums and, you know, in those decision-making elements through our service systems. And I believe that lack of partnership and co-design with the Aboriginal community probably needs to be a key part of the reform that needs to happen And, you know, without that reform happening, we're continually failing to keep the voices and the participation of our Aboriginal children and families in that process. And we know that the agency of Aboriginal voice, particularly of children and families, is very critical to keeping our children connected to family, community, culture and obviously identity. So for me, you know, the legislation currently doesn't give effect to the application of all five pillars of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle and I can't see, like, within our legislation how it gives proper application in the early intervention space. That's probably the biggest challenge. And whilst there are reforms currently underway with our ledge and amendments to embed, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle more robustly in there, for me, that, that's important. However, I've yet to see the reform that deliberately promotes engagement with Aboriginal families and their communities in all levels of decision-making impacting the safety and wellbeing of Aboriginal children and young people. But I want to go back to one of my earlier points, and it's a cornerstone point about Aboriginal self-determination. If we have the debate about a complete overhaul, then the conversation needs to include a new Aboriginal service system, including a piece of legislation dedicated explicitly to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people, a dedicated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child safety strategy and framework, including standards and Aboriginal governance and proper resourcing around the implementation of that legislation and strategy, which includes a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lead role. Uh, Thank you, um, April. And you did it nicely within the time frame too, so thank you. Justin, would you like me to repeat the question or you're ready to go? Um, I should be right. Um, I should just say ditto to what uh, April said uh, (laughs) because... She hit a number of these points. That's the, that's the beauty of going first. Yes. <laughs> so, look, I think um, exactly what April was talking about, but I think there's a core issue which hasn't been fully addressed or spoken about. I mean, probably has been spoken about, but when we talk about government, we're talking about the legislation and how child protection out of home care was built upon. It was fundamentally built and our first interaction with this system as Aboriginal people that children were removed because of their race. 
And I believe that that institutional racism, which that system was built on, still needs to have some pretty strong and constructive conversations about how do we dismantle this and don't think that just putting new things on top of a system is going to fix it, but we've got to dismantle some of the things that have been guiding out-of-home care child protection across Australia and obviously in the state here in Victoria. So institutional racism needs to be addressed. I heard a great example um, which I think kind of typifies why we're still in this space where we've got such a huge over-representation number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island children in out-of-home care and coming in contact and continually come in contact generation after generation once the young ones grow up then their children are coming into connection with that. And the example I had uh, that was given to me is that if anyone ever has grown grapes on trellises, they put a trellis down, they put a vine in, and the vine will grow over that trellis. And um, the trellis, if you see the trellis is seen to be, that was a system that was originally set up. Whatever new vines you bring in and use the same trellis, it will take that shape. And I didn't realise this, but if you remove the trellis after a number of years, the vine continues to grow exactly in that same sort of shape. So we've got to, um, I think, address this and, and have these conversations. I know the conversations are have, having the space for it where departments, governments, states, territories and particularly the Commonwealth understand that we've got to be truthful about why we've got this systemic issue, why we've got such a huge over-representation um, of Aboriginal young people in um, the child protection area and I think it bases on why children were removed from the very early days to where we are now. And w- moving into what we need to do and what I see is the value of culture should be, um, I don't think it's seen enough as strength-based, it's kind of seen as either something as from the broader Australia, something which is like a, a reward or something exotic, but it is. it needs to be seen as a strength-based and it is the foundation of getting our community stronger and our young people and that protective factor and that the system and, and society values Aboriginal families, values Aboriginal parents, values the concept of keeping those together as much as we can. And the final thing I just want to say is consistency. It would be great to have the whole system right across Australia, but even in state, that wherever you are born, wherever, wherever you might unfortunately be in part of child protection or out of home care, is that the consistency with legislation and how a child and the family are treated and legislation is upheld that was consistent right across this nation. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Commissioner right. Lewis. Right. Okay. The first thing I just I, I just want to address, I know the question is specifically about how do we fix the out-of-home care system. The thing for me is about how do we get rid of over-representation and that is absolutely the focus of Family Matters and we've got to be really careful to remember that the over-representation is actually a litmus test for the success or failure of broader social policy. So when we start to narrow the conversation and we focus only on the statutory child protection system, we actually miss a massive opportunity to promote the safety and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. With regard to the system specifically, I think the Family Matters uh, Roadmap 
from, you know, years ago and um, the recommendations now make that very, very clear that the way to reform those systems are to implement each and every one of the four building blocks. The most important activity under that for me is around implementation of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle in a manner consistent with its intent. And I'm talking about all five elements. In Queensland, it's the only jurisdiction to have um, introduced all five elements into the legislation. Um, But we've got a ways to go in terms of um, true accountability uh, for implementation against each of those five elements. I think when we look at the information that's readily available to make a a call about the, you know, performance of a child protection system, um, we're fed with data that is about particular functions, you know. If it's purely just about reporting the number of removals, gold star, most systems in Australia are pretty good at doing that. But the purpose is supposed to be about safety and well-being of Aboriginal children. So where is the reporting and the data that actually tells or speaks to the status of well-being and safety of Aboriginal children across this country. And so we need to start to um, push back, um, expect more in terms of the data and also not got tangled up in those discussions about data where it becomes the excuse for inaction. Um, It's very clear what safety feels like, looks like to our children and our families. And we need to actually start to introduce measures that reflect the system's capacity to deliver on those things. Great. Thank you, Natalie. And can I just say you all touched on, you know, the Family Matters report um, and the outcomes that we want and, and Nat, you just summed it up perfectly, some of the stuff in there because you know it so well. So I think, you know, the, the working together of Family Matters and, and the commissioners is going to be a really good thing in the, the fact that we're all pushing the same sort of agenda. So I'll go back to you, Natalie. What are your thoughts about a National Aboriginal Children's Commissioner role and how do you think it could best work? What are your bottom lines for an effective national role? Okay, it's going to come as no surprise, but um, I think the you know the scale and the significance of the issues that are impacting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in this country warrants an unapologetic focus and the independence to drive an explicit child rights agenda for First Nations children. So while we can you know see that you know there are some current and even previous reforms at the Commonwealth level and, and at a jurisdictional level, there's no one to connect the dots and to actually make sure that. Reg- regardless of where that reform is taking place, that they are front and centre focused on the capacity of that particular reform to promote the the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. I worry because a lot of the time our kids actually get made invisible in large-scale reform agendas and for the best of intentions and commitments of people, um, you know, that sat around the table for a long period of time progressing the National Framework for Protecting Australia's Children. Inevitably, it is an all-children approach. And and while we see it as the most compelling crisis in in our country, being the over-representation of our kids in statutory systems, there's not enough time on the agenda. There's not enough effort and resources that can be channeled into specifically focusing on improving outcomes for our kids. And so I think it's really important uh, for, in terms of non-negotiables, that there is statutory independence. They absolutely need to have own motion powers. They need to be able to establish formal relationships with the growing network of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander commissioners across the country. And we need to actually, you know, work 
far more cooperatively to actually um, bring accountability for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. It's sad that there's all this sort of disengagement as soon as, you know, largely at the Commonwealth level when we start to talk about rights, um, there's an uncomfortability with that type of language. But me personally, I can't sit through another embarrassing performance like the last periodic review of Australia's performance in terms of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So while we're in positions where we can make a difference, we should absolutely do so. Well, thanks, Natalie. I feel like clapping after you guys speak. It's just great to hear. Justin, what are your thoughts around the National Commissioner role? Look, I, as soon as I came into this role and started to understand what you could do in this space and having a focused voice with independency and a voice directly to a whole lot of different levels of government in, in the state of Victoria my mind went straight to that we need a National Commissioner focused solely on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people. There is no doubt about it. I know that there's other commissioners that have focuses within the Aboriginal space, but if children and young people are our biggest population pool and they're so overrepresented in a number of different areas, why wouldn't we have someone which is 100% focused on this cohort? And I know that there's a bit of a pushback, can be pushed back to say, well, a lot of these responsibilities rely and over-representation rely within state jurisdictions. But we need someone, we need a position at a national level to be able to keep this country accountable. And um, Natalie mentioned about the UN. It's quite embarrassing that we've got a country of so much wealth and so much advancement, but in this space around Aboriginal children, we fall so far behind in so many different areas, not just in youth justice, not just in child protection, but suicides, a whole range of things which are just devastating. And together with that, we must realise that there is um, national decisions that are made, there's national laws that have been put into place, there's restrictions that come down nationally which affect our families, which then in turn affect our children. So having a commissioner to monitor that, work with hopefully uh, more Aboriginal commissioners within um, states and jurisdictions, well, I think we'll be able to provide a voice and a pointed focused view and advocacy for our most vulnerable young people um, in this country. And uh, I just think that it's the independency is, is a key. It's access to have a voice and be able to speak when it needs to and to feed into national decision-making around, you know, all children, but particularly Aboriginal children. Right. Thank you, Justin. April. Thank you. Um, question to me. Well, I think you'd be able to garner from my input that it's without hesitation that I put my support behind the call for a um, National Aboriginal Trust Islander Children's Commissioner. We know from the intergenerational effects of dispossession and poverty and the trauma for family separation and removals has led to our children and young people experiencing compounding levels of disadvantage, not experienced by non-Aboriginal peers, by their non-Aboriginal peoples. So let's remember that this experience is before no others. It's only for Aboriginal children and young people. This is unique to our young followers. And as I said earlier, we as Aboriginal people are invested in our people and our issues, especially our children and young people like no other. It is critical that this role in the event that it's established is independent and has statutory powers and is filled by an Aboriginal person to provide that leadership. You know, and whilst we'd expect powers commensurate with the National Commissioner's role, like, we expect it to not be a little black version of it. We understand that the focus and its operations, we on matters 
on, on things that matter to our Aboriginal children and young people and, you know, as so eloquently said by Natalie and Justin, and it's about our rights for our Aboriginal children, their rights as children and their rights as Aboriginal children. And so without repeating what Natalie and Justin have said, we know that a commission at the national level could advocate for the needs and rights and views of our Aboriginal children and young people, but we also need to hold a government and government systems to account and to have accountability in the systems. And that accountability needs to be strengthened at the state and territory levels as well. And so, you know, with the call for a national commissioner um, for Aboriginal children and young people, we'd like to see also that every state and territory has indeed an Aboriginal Children's Commissioner. And I suppose when you look at what is out there, you know, in the public space, the call for a, um, a national voice, well, it brings me to what we know, you know, what Patrick Dodson said out of the Bringing Them Home report, we've got unfinished business, but we've also got the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And I just want to take us to a nice little point out of this statement that resonates with this message about the call for a National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commissioner is that when we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to our country. We ask for a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. I think that sums it up for me and it really is going back to that cornerstone point that I never, ever want to lose and that's about Aboriginal self-determination. Thank you, um, April. This is where I get to put you three on the spot because I've got questions <laughs> from the people out there that have been listening. And I guess the first question from, thanks, Michael Curry, is what are some of the hopeful outcomes that we might see for our children in light of the National Partnership Agreement? Well, we know this is the first time in any NPA that we've seen a dedicated target around reducing the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children out of home care and a focus on the measures around that, which includes obviously the application and adherence of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle. And for me, I think, you know, having spent considerable amount of years in Aboriginal health, that the interaction of a number of targets in that NPA, closing the gap NPA, relate to our children and young people's wellbeing. So I'm hopeful that we'll get the dedicated resources, we'll get greater collaboration between Commonwealth and state, but also our Aboriginal community controlled sector in driving the solutions and driving the outcomes. But that's not about letting um, Maintum off the hook. I think when, when we talk about Aboriginal community controlled, that doesn't mean that we support the abrogation of responsibility from the state because they are still there and they have a legal responsibility to still resource and make a difference to the things that impact on our Aboriginal children and young people as well. I might go on to another question so we can get through some. And this one um, is from Rachel and it's for Commissioner Lewis and Commissioner Mohamed. Both touched on over-representation of Aboriginal children in the childcare system. Do you find that there is a direct correlation between the over-representation in the childcare system and the over-representation in the juvenile detention rates? Is the over-representation more than just a product of institutional racism? I might go first, Nat, and then you can finish it off. Can I first say that the number of children in the youth justice system, Aboriginal children, though we're over-represented, those numbers I think we should be able to manage. I mean, those numbers aren't 
thousands and thousands of kids. I mean, when you break it down to states and then you break it down to regions, they are connected. And I know I'll probably speak more from Victoria, but I know in Victoria there is close to over 80% of all Aboriginal children in the youth justice system or have had some child protection experience or are currently in child protection as, as they are in, the, in both the systems at the same time. So there is a connection, short answer. I think racism does play a part, stereotyping plays a part, because it's not only the young people, it's their families that are also known to both sides of the system and sometimes they get targeted unfairly and I've seen that happen and when they get targeted unfairly the system morphs into this is the projection which you you will go down to which will be you know if it's resi care then where do you go from resi care if you do something it's then remand and then find yourself in the youth justice system on and off over a period of time so there is a race bias whatever you want to call it which connects those young people to these systems and that has to be broken and see the strength of the young person. But they definitely are connected. And we're not going to reduce over-representation in the justice system until we reduce over-representation in child protection. Right. Thank you, Justin. And you've done a lot of work in, in both sort of areas um, and more so recently juvenile justice. So you can see that on their website. Natalie, did you want to add to that or did he say? <laughs> I mean, pretty much covered it. It's, I mean, the trajectory is pretty clear. It's, um, it's, it's very similar in, in terms of our data in, in Queensland. Um, but I think that the, the similarities actually occur before that, and that's around the experience of inequity in terms of um, access to quality health services, access to um, safe and stable, you know, long-term housing early childhood education, all of those things, when children and families experience inequity in that space, their vulnerability to statutory systems increases. And so in order for us to impact youth justice, we also have to impact the drivers of entry into the child protection system. And, you know, we also need to accept that systemic racism is not a figment of the Aboriginal imagination. It happens, it is there, and there is absolutely in every state and jurisdiction in this country cause to critically review the types of tools, frameworks and um, programs that we have incorporated into those systems because inherent cultural bias in those is only exacerbating the overrepresentation of our kids in statutory system. So it, it requires attention and it, and it needs to be addressed. Great. And can I say, we, we also don't afford our vulnerable families early intervention, early help services and divert our children and young people away from the youth justice and the child protection system. Well, that goes into the next question from Emma Bobbington-Stubbs. There seems to be a focus on First Nations children once they've entered care. Is it the Commissioner's role to help prevent First Nations children entering care? I think I think it's everyone's role. We've got to make sure the children that are in care get the level of protection and care and love that they need and they deserve. But I think we spend a lot of the government resources, a lot of our time resources is, is in that field and we've got to be able to even that up a lot more. I'm not saying take away from one to the other, definitely not that, but add additional resources in for the prevention side of things and working with families and keeping those family units together and strengthen them, which should be done on country and by community leadership and um, self-determination, through the self-determination values. Thanks, Justin. Did um, Natalie or April want to 
I think, well, you know, I'm just going to push the Family Matters building blocks again. You know, that's the whole purpose around the universal and targeted supports. And um, and so it is absolutely as a commissioner um, and for us as a QFCC, it is important to understand that if we don't get that part right, if we don't address the inequity in terms of access to those quality services that make the foundations for strong children and families, um, then we're doing a disservice. So I think, we've, you know, we've got a really balanced view of what is our role and, yeah, certainly part of what we do. Yeah, and I agree. And that those early help services and how they're delivered culturally appropriately and with the support of our Aboriginal community controlled sector is critical. And we know that we have to build those therapeutic services, early help services, on Aboriginal ways and knowings to get greater access and greater reach across to our, you know, our vulnerable children and their families. So I, I do fierce advocating around prevention and we know what the dilemma is. We've got resources trapped in the acute end and the challenge is, is to actually see a redistribution of our resources to be more focused and concentrated in early help so we do keep our children and families out of the child protection, out of the youth justice system. You've just heard April Laurie, Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People in South Australia. You've also been listening to her Victorian and Queensland counterparts, Justin Muhammad and Natalie Lewis. They were taking part in the online forum, Making Child Protection More Accountable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children and Their Families. It was hosted by Family Matters and facilitated by the organisation's chair, Sue Ann Hunter. To take us out tonight, we've got a track from the late Dr G Unipingu. This is the title track from his album, Jaramiri, meaning Child of the Rainbow. You're going out.
That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.